Basically, slang is kind of like the underworld of language. It's the things that you're not supposed to see. It's the things you're not supposed to understand and not supposed to be able to, to define, which I suppose then leads us to our next question. Where does that leave us as language learners? When we come to learning a brand new language, how do we navigate that space of, of let's call it, you know, prohibited language, essentially, that you're not supposed to know as a foreigner? Hello and welcome back to series two of Rosetta Stone's More Than Words podcast in which we talk to fascinating people and experts in the field of language and linguistics to answer your most pressing questions about learning another language. My name is Alex Rawlings and I was named Britain's most multilingual student in 2012 and I'll be your guide for this series providing some tips that I've picked up on my way to fluency in 12 different languages. Last episode we discussed vocabulary and today we're going to take that one step further by talking about slang. Where does it come from? How important should it be when you're learning a new language? And where do we look to start adding slang to our vocabulary? Susie Dent is back to help answer these questions. And we'll also be joined by Dr. Tanya Fahey Palmer, a lecturer in linguistics at the University of Aberdeen, who specializes in intercultural communication, as well as the UK's favorite German comedian, Henning Wien. I had a lot of fun making this episode in which we talk about taboo, the positive and negative aspects of slang, and of course, the importance of being aware of the context that it's being used in. As always, I'll be summarising everything for you at the end, so enjoy. Susie, we heard last time about your love of lexicon, so Tanya, perhaps we could start with you. Being a linguistics professor, just where did your love for language come from and how did it lead to your expertise in intercultural communication? Well, thank you so much for the question. Delighted to be here with you all today. Um, so my own personal background um, is that I'm half Irish, half Chilean. So I grew up in a multilingual household in rural Ireland. Um, and from there, I really started to understand how, you know, the language that I was speaking at home with my mum and the culture even that I was engaging with my mum was quite different at times to broader society in Ireland at the time. So from there, I was very interested in learning about new cultures and languages. Um, I moved to Spain for a year when I was at university. I've lived in China and Australia, spent time in South Africa and Italy over the years as well. And I've been living in Scotland for the past 10 years now. Um, so my love for language really comes from trying to understand the intricate process of culture and how that really influences language, our language use, our construction of identity um, in our everyday lives and everyday conversations as well. Fantastic. So we have a few countries in common, I hear. I've also spent a lot of time in South Africa and I now live in Spain. Scotland, somewhere I've not spent a lot of my life, but um, maybe that's still to come. Yeah. <laughs> um, and Henning, you are now one of the best known, let's say, foreign comedians in the UK. So you've clearly grasped the English language to a very high degree. I think one of the things I really enjoy about hearing you speak is particularly the way you use the English language in such an authentic kind of way. Where did your journey with learning languages and learning English start? Well, it did start at school, like with most people. Uh, so, but when I finished school, I only had the most, I only spoke most rudimentary English because uh, when you learn it at school, well, what, what, you don't know, well, you don't know any you don't really speak the language, do you? You don't know any colloquialisms, you know, nothing. The only thing you do know is grammar, because that's the only thing they do teach you at school. And then I remember when I arrived here in Britain 20 years ago, I used to say everything exactly the way it was written in my grammar book. I was going like, I, I was, you were, he, she was, uh, uh, we were, you were, they were. But then having lived in London, so then I... Uh, and realize that's not what people say. People say, I was, you was, 
he, she was, we was, you was, they was. So, and then essentially, even that little bit that I learned at school then turned out to be completely wrong or, or not, not wrong as such, but uh, uh, make you out of kilter with everyone else. And uh, in many ways I was blessed and I did come to Britain with very little English because that meant I was free to absorb all the idiosyncrasies of the English language. And then I think that is the, um, the one thing about learning languages when you, when you're at school in a different country, well, what do you need it for? So uh, well, what's the point of learning foreign language? Uh, but once you're in the country, then obviously you immerse yourself into the culture and then you need it and you will learn it. So uh, it's almost something uh, I, I, I remember at school, I actually went to the, uh, to the, head, to the headmaster and said, what's the point of us learning English? We shouldn't be learning English. We should be learning Plattdeutsch, our local, uh, our local dialect. And uh, because no one was able to speak that any longer in English, I thought, well, it's absolutely pointless. If I ever will need English, I'll learn it anyway. When we think about standard English in the UK, I think it, we do come back to this term of the Queen's English being kind of the standard. But then I don't think I know anyone who really speaks the Queen's English. And then the only person I can really think of in the UK who speaks the Queen's English is the Queen. You know, so why do we hold that as, as the standard? The, react, the reality is that we all kind of speak our own versions of the language, our own varieties. We've got words that we'd maybe use in certain social groups that wouldn't be understood outside of that. And then I suppose we come back to this question of, of is it this grey zone between official language and slang? So maybe, you know, Tanya, I could just put the question to you. What actually is slang and where does it come from? So in my interpretation, I mean, I look a lot at communities of practice and discourse community and within any given community of practice or culture, uh, people that are participants within that will kind of uh, conform to certain values or norms or ways of behaving, etc. And language is an essential component of this. So, for example, when we talk about slang, we're looking at it as being a characteristic of that community's innate values and and strategies almost for belonging um so for example i was thinking about this and you know when i lived in china and i had learned how to say things like hi how are you and ni hao was how you said hello in chinese as far as i was concerned so every single day the groundskeeper of where we were living would say shifan lima and I would have no idea what he was saying every day. And I was like desperate, like, well, that's not hello. What, what, what's he trying to say to me here? Uh, and eventually I figured out, it's like, have you eaten? So again, culturally within that context, it was a greeting that was very much alluding to a particular way of, you know, thinking in the past, thinking about nourishment, thinking about caring for others as such. Um, and going through different ways of approaching that through cultures as well. You know, in Ireland, they might say to you, how's the crack? Which of course, you know, has problems itself if you don't know what crack means as fun in Ireland, you know, or another one in Spain, you know this yourself, you know, que tal tía or tío, you know, they make it very colloquial and involving for you. Um, so I really see uh, slang as this form of involving each other more as a community and really, defining us in terms of the different communities that we have membership of as well. 
I just want to take a moment to let our More Than Words listeners know that to help apply the tips that you're learning with us, Rosetta Stone has a special offer for all podcast listeners, arming you with everything you need to start learning on the go. Simply go to rosettastone.co.uk forward slash podcast, where you'll receive a special offer on all Rosetta Stone courses, including their lifetime subscription, which gives you access to all languages for life. The link is in the episode description, so just click through from there to start your own language learning journey today. I've never understood why everybody in Spain calls everybody else their uncle or their aunt, even if they have no relation whatsoever, but that does seem to be what happens. Susie, I know you're a fellow word fan and you're someone who thinks a lot about this kind of thing. How would you kind of draw the line between what constitutes slang and what constitutes kind of official language? Yeah, it, it's a tricky one. I mean, um, there's a, a brilliant slang lexicographer, and um, I'm sure you will have heard of him, um, Jonathan Green, who's like the sort of uh, the king of slang, really, in the UK. He's written extensively. He's written pretty much the OED of slang. And I'll always remember he defines slang as the language that says no. Um, so essentially, he has always seen it as the language that is kind of impertinent, doesn't stick to the rules and regulations, has always been, since its beginnings at least, has been linked to the kind of, you know, the marginalised, the depths of society in a way. And, and some of the very first dictionaries ever to be created were in fact glossaries of criminal slang, um, who, you know, again, as Tony was saying, it's a very tribal thing. It is an identity marker. Um, you know, there were, there were kind of certain phrases that highwaymen would use um, uh, in London to show that if they said the music's paid, it meant that they were it, they were one of them, basically, you know, I, I'm with you, don't don't go after me because, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm part of the group. Um, and so so for Jonathan, it's a kind of it's where people who don't fit in kind of find a home in some way. It's something apart. And and I think, you know, that that sort of in some ways is still very true. I mean, if you take, you know, the classic teenage slang that is designed to keep other people out, specifically parents and any kind of authorities. And as soon as we scaled the wall, it moves on. And it, I love the fact that slang is possibly the fastest moving area of language we have precisely because it needs to evade all the time, whether it's Cockney rhyming slang, which also began as some kind of criminal code, uh, which was fascinating. And, and the sort of costermongers of London who wanted perhaps to kind of you know, whisper certain things to each other. They came up with this wonderful, bantery, um, colourful language that was both fun to use, but also really important as a kind of secret code. And I love that. I love that about slang, that it operates about as a code for those in the know and keep strangers out. Fascinating, isn't it? So basically slang is kind of like the underworld of language. It's the things that you're not supposed to see. It's the things you're not supposed to understand and not supposed to be able to to define which I suppose then leads us to our next question where does that leave us as language learners when we come to learning a brand new language how do we navigate that space of, of let's call it you know prohibited language essentially that you're not supposed to know as a foreigner it's really true I would just say though Alex that it, it you will find a lot of slang in certainly in English dictionaries so um, when I sit in Dictionary Corner on, on Countdown the, the um, game show that I work on that Henning knows because he's been on the comedy version of it um you know, very often the guests sitting next to me will say, well, surely that's not in the dictionary, that's slang. And I will always say, well, yes, it's precisely because it is slang that it needs to go in because people quite often won't understand it. And it's a completely legitimate form of language. It's just that it's always been marginalised and, as you say, not, not seen as part of the kind of official uh, language that we should all be learning. And then okay. after a while, it becomes mainstream anyway, doesn't it, potentially? Yeah, yeah absolutely. 
But I can imagine for a language learner, though, I mean, I know for myself, trying to understand what slang means in a new language can be very tricky because especially if it's in those early stages of formation, kind of those, the dictionary definition doesn't really exist, you know, and so you're basically yeah. picking up bits of words here and there from friends and people. And I suppose, Henning, what's your experience been like that of learning English slang? I mean, was it easy? Was it, was it challenging? Did you ever get any difficult situations as a result of it? Well, I found that very, very enjoyable because I got a bit of a flourish in German. So I have lots of, used lots of expressions in, in German anyway. So that is my way of, of using language. And therefore, slang lends itself to a sense. Slang is something that I speak, that I speak a lot at home. Um, so that was a quite natural fit, really, and uh, a good way of. So, see, I, I came to Britain to work for a football club in, uh, uh, in, in, in the often Wickham Wanderers. And uh, so I've always worked within, within that kind of industry. So I need to read the sports page uh, of a paper that's obviously littered with slang. It's all, it's all, uh, it's all more colourful. And then you do learn language on, on trust. Well, there was, like, there was an instance where I, talking about Cockney rhyming slang, uh, I was once... Uh, taught uh, what turned out to be a racist slur. I had no idea he was. And then I used it on, uh, on a program hosted by David Mitchell. And uh, well, I didn't get much of a reaction from the audience. And then I thought, well, have I done something wrong here? So and I knew something wasn't right, but uh, I obviously had no idea what, what I'd said uh, because well, you, you learn language on trust. If you don't accept what other people tell you, you have to take it as gospel really uh, uh, because otherwise you, 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 won't, you won't get anywhere so someone played a practical joke on me telling me that a word means something when it doesn't and then you use it and then you can end up uh, uh, not uh, uh, yeah, you can end up uh, uh, in, in a slightly uh, sticky situation I suppose that is always the challenge for language learners, right? I mean, whenever we're learning another language, we fundamentally face this problem that, you know, languages are never a one-for-one -one match. And a word that means something in one language might sort of mean that in another language, but there's always more connotations, there's more context, more usage, and you kind of, you have to go kind of on a case-by-case -case basis. But with slang, it almost seems like it really doesn't match up at all sometimes. And slang kind of develops in very separate ways in different languages, right? So, I mean, Tanya, why, you know, why is that? Why would a certain expression become commonplace in one language, but not in another? Mm. Um, well, that's an interesting one. I think, again, it comes down to context, cultural codes and uh, identifying with different practices that are relevant to the context around you. But just drawing back on what Henning was saying, you know, in terms of, you know, slang as being inappropriate as well sometimes, I think that's a really interesting, important point to consider. Um, because essentially, you know, within every social group, um, there is this sometimes, um, um, it's, it's important to call out, you know, um, what's the word I'm looking for there's a sometimes reliance on constructing an out group in order to make your own in group the more viable positive option so you know using slang that's derogative towards other group although it's highly inappropriate sometimes by certain groups um is seen as a way you know to lift your own social group and you know deviate or position another group in a very negative light and it's something that we're becoming more and more conscious of and aware of in language and the power of language and positioning social groups in this negative way 
and sometimes something that we actually need to call out an awful lot more, um, I think as well. Um, but it brings interestingly into the context of taboo language then and slang, you know, taboo language as being this kind of feature characteristic that can be aligned with slang and, and looking at the functions of that and seeing how, you know, different cultures will have different models of what is taboo or inappropriate also. So the, the use of the word taboo was brought into the English language uh, by Captain Cook in the 1700s uh, from the Tongan language and very much used as the kind of conceptualization of things that we are prohibited to talk about or prohibited to do in society. And then therefore kind of what certain cultures will use as taboo language, you know, certain swear words, curse words, and certain forms of derogatory slang will differ as well. So, you know, for me growing up speaking Chilean Spanish at home with my mum, by the way, who never spoke a swear word to me and going to live in Peninsular Spain for the year um, and really, was there for you know six years on and off after that really realizing how pivotal to the culture swearing is in Spain you know and it becomes the having the function of that expression of emotion that expression of expressing your identity and your feeling on a certain topic as well so kind of going back to your question you know it really depends on what each society you know values in terms of expression or cultural norms. So Slang, but obviously, I mean, we're getting here as well, not just onto slang, but onto the issue of taboo, as you mentioned, Tanya. And I suppose taboo is a very interesting thing because, you know, it, it, it's something that a lot of comedians use to quite comedic effect and something that they use to connect with their audiences. Why do we find taboo and in particular taboo language to be so funny sometimes? Yeah, it's directly associated with our emotive responses and humor being one of those. So something that I think was really interesting, I read a study recently um, that looked at the associations between using swear words and the alleviation of pain. So bear with me, this links back to humor. Lalakisia, it's called. Yeah, it's incredible. Yeah. So, you know, if you bang your foot off something, if you hurt yourself, if you let out an expletive or a swear word, it immediately helps to trigger that emotional response, that alleviation pain through raising your blood levels etc um, and it's something fascinating and also I suppose if we look at how that links back to humor it has that same emotive response sometimes not all the time again we need to think about context here to be very clear about that too um, but in this study particularly they looked at introducing two different uh, swear words I think one was foosh and one was twiz pipe so they invented swear words and gave it to participants to see if it would help to alleviate pain in the same way that the expletive word f-u-c-k would um, so when uh, people would hit themselves or like be poor have cold water poured over them to a degree of pain um, those who expressed the f-u-c-k word had immediate alleviation through the emotion response and those who use the fake words, such as foosh or twist pipe, that had the response of distracting through humor. So it's connecting this response to us that, you know, we hear these words, we associate them, you know, with that emotion response, uh, it can trigger that humorous element for us as well, especially if we know sometimes that the word shouldn't be being used or it's a word being used in a specific way. So it's kind of twisting taboo on its head as well uh, and positioning it as this, uh, 
hilarious concept, I think, and a lot of the time in, in Henning's work, probably he'd know a lot more about how that works in practice. Now, as you say, I find it so interesting that the swear words that have been with us since, um, I mean, we, we talk about most, most of them being Anglo-Saxon. In fact, most of them came around about the 16th century, but they still have such power. And what's quite interesting about the sort of genuine attempts to create new swear words is they're pretty much blends or compounds of existing swear words. And, you know, for all that slang evolves incredibly quickly, the swear words are the ones that just remain remarkably constant. And we may, as you say, as you say, Tanya Henning, we'll have a real view on this, but, you know, I just sitting on them, uh, eight out of 10 cats does countdown. Um, sometimes all one of the brilliant comedians needs to do is just tell Jimmy to F off or whatever. And the whole audience will laugh. And it's that knee jerk it's sort of sensation of something naughty, however prolifically everyone swears these days. It is that kind of, that sort of slight, um, it's not, not even uneasiness. I would love to actually be able to determine what the response is, but it, I find it so fascinating that our taboos are so constant when most of slang actually really isn't. Definitely. And like you say, the power of language there, I think, you know, it's, it's, they are these forceful words and something that we can, you know, capture and conceptualize and we just express off in a whim almost and it allows for either intentionality in terms of either humor or of course depending on context threat almost as well you know to say f off to somebody you know can yeah. be very oh, so versatile as swear words exactly yeah. yeah so it's fascinating um how it kind of can how they can navigate us through different social circumstances as well mm -hmm. well one of the things i've always found very interesting and so i'm glad we've started to talk about the f word because this is actually one of the things i wanted to ask you all about is um seeing how foreign well seeing how for other languages let's say adopt different swear words and how different languages swear for example I remember being really surprised when I found out that in Dutch it's very common to curse people by telling them to get illnesses so for example if you want to tell someone to f off you tell them to go get cancer which kind of you know I was very shocked about or if your bike doesn't work because the, the tire's punctured you say oh my cancer tire for example yeah. which which you know, I'm not really sure how I feel about that, if I'm honest, no. but it's definitely a part of the language you've got to be aware of. Um, but then one of the things that I sort of did in my slightly strange language obsessed childhood when I was spending long summers in Greece is I'd watch a lot of um, American TV in Greece with the Greek subtitles. And I'd always pay really close attention to how they translate the F word into Greek because there was no single word that would ever quite get it. And I see it now even with Spanish. There's all sorts of different ways that people try to translate that word and they just can't quite manage to, 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 to decide on a single version of what it should look like. And then I also noticed that in some languages like the Scandinavian languages, Danish, Swedish, Norwegian, things like that, they've even started just using the English F word in the language as an expletive, you know, which, which is really, really interesting. So what's going on there? Why, why is the F word so popular around the world? Um, and, and why, to the extent that it's even being used in other languages? My own view on that is, is not just the, the you know, the, the power that that particular word has, but also just, I guess, the power of English across the world and whether or not, you know, it's American English or British English, just that it is seen as um, a language of, um, you know, quite sort of rebellious culture, I guess, in many ways, whether it's musically or, um, or artistically or whatever. So I guess from that point of view, there might want to be a kind of desired affinity with 
um, with those languages because of that kind of slight rebellion and what better way to rebel than using the, you know, the F word. Although you mentioned, Alex, the Scandinavian ones. I remember when I was completely hooked on the Scandinoir programmes like The Bridge and The Killing and um, fantastic series. Um, it was always the swear words that I would pick up for some reason. And, and those are the ones that I kind of remember. Um, I think it was just because they were said with such kind of force and with such regularity that actually I started swearing in Danish, or at least what I thought was what they were saying uh, for a little while. So I kind of appropriated theirs, which is quite strange. It's just the power of swearing is quite extraordinary. Swearing is always the first, the first, if you speak to someone, they've only got about five words then of German. I bet you a fiver that Scheiße will be one of them. Yeah. Scheiße is not as taboo as, as, as the equivalent would be in English, right? I mean, I would hear that all the time when I was in Germany. Yeah, yeah okay. but again, it's quite, it's, the, 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 it's, it's still quite, well, it's still a swear word, so you wouldn't, you wouldn't say, it, it, it wouldn't be on television, except for, it would only be the naughty character who would be allowed uh, uh, to say that word. So, and, and even there, only in moderation. Yeah, and I think my experience of that is kind of going on language exchanges to Germany and kind of noticing that the kids there would quite happily say scheiße to their parents, you know, and, and, and it was fine and they'd respond using it. And I sort of thought, you know, us growing up in London, if, if we swore at our parents, that was definitely something with consequences that we wouldn't want to do. So there was kind of a different cultural context there. Yeah, I don't know who you were, who you were exchanging with, with what kind of people. So uh, I certainly know I wouldn't, I wouldn't have dreamt of saying scheiße to my parents. I might have said scheiße about something. And even then, I would have been told that's unnecessary. And I think most of my friends would be the same story. No one would say to their parents, scheiße, I don't think. So uh, yeah, it's interesting. Again, but that might be that you were in a different part of Germany. And it might even only be one town because all it takes is a group of friends and, and then it becomes like more, because more people use it within that certain very small area, then it becomes like okay amongst those few people. This comes back to this idea of identity and belonging, isn't it? Because we only have our own subjective experience of language and that's very limited in a foreign language because we know far fewer people who speak that language. So maybe we get used to the way one group of people speak and we don't necessarily realise that that's not acceptable for wider society. Yeah, yeah. exactly. I think as Susie was saying as well, you know, in terms of English, I, I think that concept of language, language? <laughs> English as a lingua franca uh, is really important, you know, and how culture as well, the English culture, or, you know, US culture, British culture has become so dominant um, also through the movie industry, through television, etc. And how it's a real reflection, you know, of the dominance of that culture that it's swear words are even being adopted um, in different contexts as well. Um, and something that I find interesting and, and, you know, kind of tying up as well with what you're talking about in terms of different cultures using different forms of taboo language. Again, you know, taboo language ranging from um, the, the physical body, uh, bodily functions to religious um, attributes as well. Um, and I always found that in Spain, I was really shocked at how much uh, religious kind of attributes there were to taboo language and swearing. Um, and I remember coming home. Um, again, you know, after after stints in Spain and, and using the word ostia, uh, which in English is literally described as the host that you know the body of Christ as such that you that you consume 
during mass. Um, and I remember my mother absolutely saying, you just do not say that in this house, you know? And I was, I was like, okay, but it's something that I had picked up so casually with Spanish people my age. Um, and I had no idea again of the contextualization of that as something so wrong in that context, you know, with, with somebody who was more respectful of religion, et cetera. So I think that that's something that we, we need to build consciousness of even in the language classroom and through our language learning processes as well as you know understanding of context understanding of you know expletives taboo language and slang in order to inform ourselves so that we do use them in the appropriate context as well um, and that's quite difficult to achieve without immersion sometimes yeah, totally I when I went to I did French and German at university and had also uh, Henny was talking about, you know, your sort of language environment, really. Um, I went to a convent. Um, I had uh, parents who never really swore, apart from using bloody, which um, probably actually never even had profane or blasphemous intent. It probably goes back to young aristocratic bloods who got uh, very drunk. So to be bloody drunk is to be drunk as a blood. Anyway, they, they would use that. But um, I consequently knew absolutely no French slang, no German slang, and sounded absolutely like Beaumarchais when I first went to Paris and Goethe when I went to Germany. And um, and I realised I'm not the only one. When I went um, much later, when I was doing an MA in German and I uh, went to stay with a German publisher, he thought the biggest insult that you could give an English person was to call them a fastilarian, which is straight from Shakespeare, and nobody has ever used it since, and I just love that. So... Um, yeah, it, it's, uh, you're right, Tanya, without immersion, it's really, really hard. Uh, well, certainly was in my day to kind of pick up any kind of slang because it was just not, not the done thing, nor was it really reflected in the dictionaries that we used them. I remember getting these um, 600 word vocabulary lists when I was doing my intensive Russian course at university and we get them on the Friday and then the test was on the Monday and I'd consistently <laughs> get about 15%, 15 to 20%, I think was my average. That's I remember tough. one of the words on that list was um, this word malakasos, which in Russian literally means the one that sucks the milk. And we were told that that was the rudest thing that you could ever call someone in, in Russia ever. And then when we arrived in, in Russia to spend our year in immersion there, we started <laughs> you know, testing the water with words like malaka sauce. We said, is that, they said they'd never heard of it in their lives and maybe their grandparents would say it, but uh, maybe that's a reflection of my Russian teacher. That is so typical. That tells you all about language learning, doesn't it? Like I remember at school, we had a kid who come to our school, he comes from the US. And uh, then a parent, the father got a job uh, in our town. So he joined our school. And then in English, you can have in the German school system, you can have marks from one to six, one being the best, six the worst. And in English, and he lived in the States all his life in English, he only got a three out of uh, three. And, then, and we all took that as a sign that he must be really, really stupid. But now, I can tell you, having been in England for such a long time and being approached by enough German teachers who teach German in English after shows and whatnot, but they can hardly string three words together. So essentially all that was saying was that our English teachers' English was nowhere near good enough to mark the boys', the boys English ability. So that's, uh, and that's, they will be, like, like our English teacher, Herr Wagner, God bless him. So, uh, he would, I would think he spoke the most basic English imaginable. So, and he couldn't really, never lived in England. He couldn't hold a conversation with anyone. But, uh, well, 
by grace of God, he was our English teacher. So, and obviously he was not in a position to teach anything to anyone other than I was, you were, he, she, it was. So, uh, yeah, so therefore coming back almost to the, to the point of, uh, you have to immerse yourself in the country, you have to live in the country. And that really is the only way, the only way to learn the language. You can do all the language learning online and whatnot to give yourself like a framework to, to join the race, but then the race actually happens once you're there. Do you think there's anything we can deduce about different cultures or different language groups by the type of slang that they use? So for example, it's interesting, Tanya, you mentioned that in Spain so much language is so religious in its origins in England and in English we seem to be obsessed with body parts and copulation and in the Netherlands they care about illnesses you know does, does this actually mean anything about these cultures or is that overthinking it? Yeah definitely I'm sure Susie you have even more historic kind of background on that but again you know just from that sociolinguistic perspective and interactional perspective again you know certainly in Spain, that there's a huge history, you know, with the Catholic Church, for example, as there would be in Ireland. And of course, any kind of deviance against the church would be highly taboo. I remember growing up in Ireland and, you know, you'd say Jesus and you said, do not take the, it was said to not take the Lord's name in sin, you know, so that was very much part of the Catholic culture. So it was incredibly taboo to even say things like, oh my God, you know, at that time, which has, it's really, it's a real euphemism nowadays, you know, everybody says it all the time, but yeah, certainly reflects the prominence for example, where religious taboo is used of religious institutions and establishments throughout society. And of course, that will differ um, for a different taboo language uh, in different cultures as well. But I'm sure, Susie, you have a lot more on the origins of that too. Um, well, like you can speak from, a, from an English perspective. Um, yes, going back to, to the sort of whole idea of euphemisms and taboos and things. So in the Middle Ages, um, as I say, the sort of swear words that we consider to be really taboo today were, were okay, pretty much. And the real profanity, and profanity comes from the Latin for outside the temple, so it was not sacred, in other words. It was all religious blasphemy, which is why we have so many exclamations that are kind of verbal fig leaves for, you know, for God or for Christ, or we have crikey. Um, we had strange formulations like Gad's Buglicans, or we had Zounds, which you'll find in some old comics, which was God's Wounds. Um, and, and some very kind of strange formulations that sometimes were slightly mocking, but most of the time they were just considered to be ways of avoiding what was incredibly um, blasphemous. And, and as our preoccupations have changed and our taboos have changed, then, you know, as I say, our swear words kind of came, became more taboo over time and the religious aspect sort of faded a little bit from, from view. But yeah, having been to a convent, I still, even today, even though I'm not particularly religious, I still wince if my daughter, for example, says, oh my God, which is totally, you know, it's what every single person in the, in the class will say, it's probably what her teacher will say, but I still have a little kind of recoil inside me, which is, is how strong that taboo uh, is still in certain areas, but certainly, you know, certainly was many, many centuries ago. And then just thinking about, you know, because obviously the people listening to, to us on this podcast, they're language learners, you know, they love language like us. So I suppose, you know, where does that leave us when, when we think not just about our own language and the rules that we grow up with, but, but how we approach those rules in a new language? I mean, my approach for a very long time has been to avoid swearing at all in a foreign language. 
uh, just to kind of play it safe. Then you get a situation like a language like Spanish, where basically it's impossible to not swear because even <laughs> the most basic expression that you would use is a swear word. Um, and then I always kind of use it and then brace myself for an unwanted reaction and then, and then see how it goes. But, you know, how, how do you think that we can really go about this as language learners? Well, I, I really think that we need to actually expose ourselves more to that if it's not something that's taught in the language classroom or um, online in different language um, capacities, but language learning capacities. Um, for in my own experience, you know, and looking at the research around this, the, la the second language learners who displayed or demonstrated less swearing in their target language than they did in their native language demonstrated less exposure to native speakers. So that's proven. So it really highlights to you that the language learner does not actually have the exposure in that second language. So in my opinion, I mean, I am a great advocate, you know, for watching film and engaging with authentic materials where possible but I've given this a little bit of thought and even in my undergraduate and, and postgraduate courses we actually run linguistic analysis on communities of practice or different discourse groups and I think that this is actually something that could be applied to language learning also so for example if as a language learner you have a particular hobby or interest or there's a certain community within the target language that you would be really interested in belonging to or learning more about the language of get online, look at Reddit posts, look at forums, look at the natural interactive language that you can find um, within these communities. And I have the example, you know, of being in Aberdeen and learning about the surf community here and not having a clue what to get barreled was or to get shacked and all of these words and, you know, trying to understand what it is. But literally looking up online, you know, oh, yes, to get shacked is to get into the wave of the barrel of a wave, but not quite. And, you know, these different things. And I suppose really trying to immerse yourself where possible, you know, almost an investigation of a particular group that you're interested in within that culture. I think that also targets your own interests and makes you passionate about learning it um, in a more natural way. Hmm. Yeah, tech blogs are good, are good source, generally speaking, aren't they? So... Which, which did you say? Sorry? Tabloids. Tabloids. Ooh, mm. I don't know. I can't be. <laughs> no, you don't have to be writing, but like the, the words they use and uh, the number of quotes in them and all that. So, uh, yeah. And then I personally, I learned a lot from the Viz magazine. So I've been, <laughs> been reading the Viz essentially. I got introduced to the Viz very early on here and I'm still buying it uh, 10 times a year. And uh, yeah, so that is. Uh, that's uh, it's a, that's a very interesting one, I find, the VIS, because not only for the language, but also for, for the issues in society. The VIS, somehow, they've always got their finger on the pulse. You might think, oh, it's just a few stupid comic strips. No, it's not. It's much more than that. They've actually got a very good... They've got their finger, actually, really on the pulse of what's happening in the country. Where so all social issues, they... they uh, they, uh, they deal with obviously in their very own way, but uh, yeah, so uh, if you can't be asked to read a paper, if you get yourself to this magazine 10 times a year, you roughly know the, the, the score. Excellent. Henning, when, at what point did you learn can't be asked? Did you learn, because you've actually used it more correctly than a lot of native English speakers who now think it's can't be asked. Uh, and so my daughter's generation would definitely say, oh, I can't be asked to do that. And when I said, no, it's actually, it's not that, because they think that's completely fine to say it. Whereas if they were to say to my mum, for example, oh, I can't be asked, she would just be, you what? Mm -hmm. um, 
But so you're using you're using the correct version, which a lot of native speakers don't. Did you learn that quite early on? I honestly can't tell you. No, it's fine. No, but it's that's one of those things. You just pick so much stuff up right, left and center and you don't really think about it. And then you hear it. So also because, see, I, 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 I was very lucky that, as I say, I worked first in football where people use quite colorful language. And then I joined the stand up circuit. There's also a lot of colorful language going on because there is people from very different walks of life. So there is like Nick Wilt, who was a, a Falklands veteran and, and, and so people from all walks of life, which I think is one of the beauties of the, of the stand-up scene that people from all backgrounds, you, you are with all of them in the same green room and you socialize with them and with a, with a, with a wide spectrum of society that I don't necessarily think you would in any other job. Um, and that's where you're then also exposed not only to people from all all parts of the country, but also from all walks of life and from all uh, from all backgrounds. So uh, yeah, therefore, uh, yeah, join when you when you go abroad, read the tabloids and uh, become a stand-up comedian. <laughs> that's awesome. Good tip. Real immersion. I love it. <laughs> well, I hope you enjoyed that episode and maybe even learned a few new slang words yourself. I think it's clear that slang is an important part of language learning that we all need to be aware of. It can help us to integrate and form better relationships with the people around us, and it can also help us when we want to be funny and can generally be quite fun to use. However, it is important to understand the context that we use it in, as sometimes the meaning of different words might cause offence, which you definitely don't want to do. So try to immerse yourself in your new language as much as possible and perhaps even start looking in places that you might not typically associate with language learning, such as the tabloids, TV, social media, or even the back pages. Just make sure you double check what those new words mean with a native speaker before you set off on your brand new stand-up career. Also a reminder to go to rosettastone.co.uk forward slash podcast for all those special offers on all Rosetta Stone courses, including their lifetime subscription. The link is in the episode description, so simply click through from there to start your own language learning journey today. Lastly, in our final episode on the 20th of May, myself and special guest Susie Dent will be answering your questions on language learning. So if there's anything that you'd like to know, simply tweet at Rosetta Stone UK for a chance to be selected. Good luck. <laughs>